the Triathlon Show 387. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Matt Pendola. Matt is a strength coach who has worked with and is working with world-class triathletes such as Flora Duffy, Gwen Jorgensen, Ben Canute and Kevin McDowell. A few weeks ago in the interview that I had with Jim Vance when we discussed the training of Ben Canute, Matt came up in the discussion because he's the one responsible for Ben's strength training. So here he is himself to discuss in more detail all of his thoughts and his approach to strength training for endurance athletes. In addition to strength training, Matt is heavily involved in coaching and teaching running form, often in collaboration with Bobby McGee. And uh, on that note, Matt asked me to mention, as he forgot to mention it himself in the episode, that by the time this episode comes out, Matt and Bobby should have launched their new podcast, uh, Run Form. So when it is out, I'll put a link in the episode description. Uh, it should, as I said, be out when this episode is released. So so probably the link will be in the description when as, as soon as you get this episode, but it's not available to me right now as I'm recording this intro. Before we get into the interview with Matt, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on the goggle lens. You can see every split as well as your average pace for the interval. And alongside that, you can also see stroke rate and even use heart rate through the integration with polar heart rate monitors. All of this helps you execute your swim workouts better, and it also makes it more fun and engaging. In the Form app, you also get access to in-depth post-swim analysis, and your workouts seamlessly sync to platforms like Training Peaks, Strava, Today's Plan, and Final Surge. The app also has a vast library of workouts and training plans, or you can build your own guided workouts. Get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on formswim.com for slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dry land swim trainer that allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back, and you can get a special TTS bundle that includes the swim bench and a bunch of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Matt Pendola. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. It's uh, it's a pleasure and honor, and hope to be able to get into it today. Serve the people listening. That's the goal. I'm sure. Uh, let's start with uh, a bit of an introduction and a background about yourself. Tell us more about. Uh, what you're doing right now and also your background and uh, the path that you've been on within the coaching and endurance sports world. Yeah, thanks. So what I'm doing right now is actually focus on coaching coaches. And I, I found that I really love it. I, I love the education that I get to give, sharing my experiences with athletes. I have been doing this for over 21 years professionally. So it's now I'm 50, right? So I get to I get to share and I certainly don't consider myself to be an expert yet. I'm my own worst critic, but I guess others would. So um, I've really enjoyed that. Just over the weekend, what I just got done doing, I worked with Shannon Clausen. She's working with some Olympic athletes, some uh, elite athletes, and a lot of age groupers. But her main passion 
is actually the Paralympics. So she drove all the way down here to Reno on her own time, her own dime with her husband. And they uh, they spent the weekend. We went through all of her questions, the concepts that we really wanted to understand to better serve the athletes that she has. And that to me is just so exciting because now I'm not just working with that one athlete. I'm working with that one coach who can help those 30 athletes. So that's that's kind of what I've been focusing on a little bit more lately. Yeah. And then and and I guess we should say that your what your field of expertise is I guess is within strength training, also running form and things so for those people that are not already familiar with you and your name. <laughs> right. I probably should say that, right? Yeah, I'm a I'm a strength coach. So going back to where I started, I guess a little bit more. Uh back in the day, I was a competitive runner myself. So in high school, I was sub 15 for a 5K, which was competitive. And I did that at 15. So it was competitive early on. I made a lot of the traditional mistakes too much too soon. A lot of injuries. Did some fairly competitive running until I was 21. And then I had some some injuries that really derailed me often enough that I that I packed it up at that point took a couple years off being told actually with uh, sciatic nerve damage being sort of my my worst case scenario keeping me from running was told that I probably just wasn't a good candidate to keep running and that's what they used to say back in the day so I I was um, in the army and when I got out I decided that I was going to serve more. So I did AmeriCorps, the National Civilian Community Corps. And in that, they had different community service divisions. But eventually, I got into a disaster relief uh, fire division, and I led that group. That required a lot of uh, training, physical training. And so I ended up getting back into my running at that point. And I had a lot of those niggles come back up again. So I had to really learn what I needed to do for myself so I could uh, do the job, essentially. Um, and I went into hot shotting after that. So that's a division in wildland fire. It's more of a specialized division. You have to be a little bit more fit and experienced for wildland fire. You tend to go to the more remote locations in the mountains, things like this, where you can't just drive to it with the engine, so to speak. And so I did that for five years. And in that time, I was a sawyer. I would, uh, in other words, cut down the heavies that we needed to, uh, to cut for breaks in the fire especially if a big tree was dead, a snag, they call it, it would throw off a lot of embers into the air and create spot fires even a mile away. So my job was on a chainsaw to do that. And what, what happened at one point was that in the middle of the night, just cutting down a tree as quickly as I could, that was creating those spot fires, about halfway up, it was on fire and it spun on me. Uh, came down, part of it hit me, and I had a lot of damage to my spine, um, L4, L5, S1 area. And so I was out of commission for a good couple years. So I selfishly decided that I was going to learn everything I could about rehab. And I did a lot of time where I was essentially assisting and learning 
in that rehab process with um, physical therapists like John Hodges, one that I still work with today. And over time, I learned a lot more and decided that that's what I wanted to get into more. So with the strength training aspect of things, I started to uh, do courses through Athletes Performance Institute. I did that for four years, and it's probably the best thing I could have ever done. I'm fortunate that I'm one of the only coaches in the world that has gone through that program that was put on by Mark Verstegen, and he had initially kind of gained fame working with Mia Hamm. He was her strength coach. And so I just really learned a lot over time about how I wanted to help develop athletes. I initially got started with court sport, ball sport athletes. Those were the the main customers that I, I had and was lucky enough to have some athletes that did make All-American in high school. A couple of those athletes went on to be able to be uh, representing the U.S. team in volleyball. I had some other athletes go pro in uh, you name the sport, but baseball, boxing, um, uh, all the big sports, football even. But eventually I realized that my true passion was in endurance sports. So I started to really focus in on that. And I started to uh, to coach at the high school level. So I did that for seven years and just learning what these kids needed from me to help them develop and you know, after that, I went on to work with triathletes and Bobby McGee is the main coach that I met and worked with. I was lucky enough where I served an athlete who made the U.S. development team and Bobby gave me a call because that's the kind of coach he is. And he said, uh, I'd love to know what you did with this athlete when it came to his run off the bike and we got to talking, we became fast friends and I went to his camp. I had already taken his courses, run transformation, read magical running. He was an icon to me, still is. And um, at that camp, I got to work with um, Alan Webb and other athletes. I couldn't believe I was even there. And so uh, from that point on, we've been working together. That's been already, I think, close to 10 years now. So uh, that's, that's my history in a nutshell. Yeah, that's that's quite amazing. Uh, first things first, I have to mention for the listeners that Bobby McGee is a past guest on the podcast, so I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, one thing that I want to follow up on with that history and your background is how long did it take for you? You started out with having this uh, spine injury and, and you started learning about rehab for yourself. What then transpired for you to turn that interest into wanting to understand more and help others and start coaching others because that's not what you were doing at the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. So first, I guess I should say with FIRE, I had some opportunities there even to get into structural. Uh, I was an EMT paramedic and I had served in the military and NCCC. So I, I had an opportunity to work structural and I decided that that just wasn't for me. It wasn't going to be my career because I just, it wasn't my passion. And so I made the the leap learning more at that time about how I could help myself serve myself just to get back to running. Because one thing that made me really angry even was doctors telling me, just, you're not going to run again, just choose something else. Like it's just 
just flip a switch and decide to love something else. And, and that wasn't okay with me. And it took me about two years to where I was running pain-free, but it was a process and it was an evolution. I learned a lot about myself in that time. And then I would say for the next 24 years or so, I've been learning how I can use those principles to help others because we all have different backgrounds, different stories, different mechanics. So I I quickly found out it wasn't going to be as easy as what worked for me. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, so one of uh, the athletes that you have been working with and uh, this kind of one of the reasons that triggered me to contact you is I just recently interviewed Jim Vance, the coach of Ben Canute, and, and Ben is somebody you've been working with uh, quite quite a lot. Uh, and uh, with just taking him as an example, what is the process when you're working one-on-one with an athlete? How how does it start? How how do you then work with an, with, with an athlete? What are the kind of uh, how do you formulate a plan and how do you monitor the progress and, and so on just to to get a an idea of what you're doing and what your what your work looks like when working with athletes directly yeah no absolutely so i don't know if you've ever seen the karate kid but uh i use the in my mind the miyagi method where i just start very very simple i start with the basics and i think people have this concept that if i'm working with ben canute that I start him off with more complex movement patterns because he's elite. And that's just not the case. What I do is I will start everybody the same way, which I look at a movement improvement assessment, I call it. And there's 10 different main movements that I've looked at. And I developed this assessment process with the physical therapist I mentioned before, John Hodges, with a sports doc, Dr. Albertson here in town, Naomi Albertson. And excuse me, over about a 10-year period of time, of course, there's 40, 50 movements that we really look at, but I honed it in for what we need to look at with endurance athletes. So an example of that would be ankle mobility. And we have a test for that where we will see if we have three inches range of motion at least on each side. So that's one where you can get that on my site. It's absolutely free. All all the movement improvements are free, including the follow-up. What movements should you focus on based off of your testing? So you get what I call a personalized protocol right away. I could talk a lot more about these things, but in other words, if we have a, say, knee pain, and we've probably all heard by now that we probably have to look upstream and downstream. And so that example of the ankle, that could be a prehab sort of preventing injuries as well as a performance issue that that person has. So we're unlocking, unleashing some performance just by improving that ankle mobility. Now, when you look at all the different parts of the body, the joints, stacking those joints, joint by joint, we, we kind of look at that joint theory where you will need to have mobility in, say, your big toe. You have to have a stable arch, have to have mobile ankles, stable knees, and up the chain we go. So that's kind of what I based that movement improvement off of. Now, from there, we will look at going into uh, progressions that are honestly just working more on the central 
part of your system. And what I mean by that is that say you have, uh, you look at a, we're talking to triathletes here. So we'll talk about a bicycle wheel, right? And you're looking at a hub and that hub is your center. The spokes going off, that's your peripheral, right? So your arms, your legs, everything moving from that center. What I normally will see when I do testing with an athlete is that they're moving their limbs ahead of their center. Their center is not moving first. It's not actually steering as well as we would like it to, if you will. So what I like to do is really focus on that hub first. So a lot of body weight movements is what we start with. And I will explain this part here where I believe in isometrics to start with, with even a guy like Ben Canute. So with isometrics... Explain, explain isometrics for somebody who is not familiar with, with that term. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So isometrics are where you're essentially going to hold a movement. So the, the easiest one that probably people understand is just holding a bridge, right? Getting into a bridge position and just holding that. Now, sometimes people will feel like, I can do a bridge for five minutes, And I say, okay, let me just see it. And when we look at them get into that bridge position, they may actually spill their spine a little bit to one side. So they're holding the bridge, but they're holding it with more loading on their more confident side, we'll say. So they might be actually tilted a little bit to the right because they're more dominant on their right. So what I will say is, first of all, You want to try to have some video so you're not trusting as much of what you feel initially you're seeing that video. And if you have a performance partner, somebody who will go 360 around you and you're like, oh, geez, I didn't realize I am actually a little bit tilted in this movement. So how do we how do we work on that? The first thing that I really promote is good breathing patterns. So we're going to work on nasal breathing while we hold that position. And that's kind of a mulligan to me when we're really working on good breathing patterns, especially with resistance through the nose. There's a longer passage, obviously, that has to get there to your uh, diaphragm. And so because of that, when we're breathing out, especially, I like to actually go with longer breath patterns out. So we have more internal rotation in your ribs. Now, when we do that, what tends to happen is we kick in more of that deeper core musculature, the transverse abdominis, that's your like inner weight belt. And when we get really good at that breathing pattern, we tend to see that the athlete starts to actually improve their positions. And so just planks kind of get a bad rap to me, but it's, it's because I think that they're the athlete is not actually putting enough intentional technique and torque and tension into the movement. So it should not be easy. And I will say that an athlete, when they first start, if they can hold a plank for a minute, fantastic. But what I tend to say is that, can we create more tension right now, actually make it more difficult for you so that you're praying at about 40 seconds in for it to be done? 
And then what you tend to see is, ah, their hips are actually steering correctly now, right? We have more of that um, centration, if you will, where joint by joint, we are where we're supposed to be. Think of it that way. And I say, okay, head to heel, strong as steel. That's the first thing that we should look at accomplishing. Then once we get past that and we understand that and we can now feel that and trust that feeling, then it's time to start moving the peripherals uh, more. And so we go into more active phases from there where you may in that plank position now start to reach one arm out. Okay. But again, traditionally what I see, and I just taught a camp recently where um, we proved this in the entire 40 people were there in that entire session, I found two people that were moving centrally first and the rest had to work on it. When you, when you talk about moving centrally first, uh, does that refer to just a, or primarily the run or does it also refer to some issues that might pop up in swimming and cycling? No, yeah, absolutely. All three for sure. So, you know, in, For example, with swimming, we see that swimmers tend to have that excessive uh, arching in their lower back, right? And so when they get into plank positions, they feel like they are neutral. And I'm not talking about trying to take their spine into a complete straight line because that's not the way the spine actually is, right? But we are talking about getting them into normalization, I would call it, where they're actually in that plank position now learning to get a little bit more spinal flexion. And so that is where we're going to start to correct some of these cyclic patterns that happen from the swim. Right. And then you take it to the bike. And I would say that now you're talking about bracing on the bike and be able to hold that position in your aerodynamic position. I'm talking about a lot of times people feel back pain. And for example, to me, that's where we have to look at a wide range of things. That's why I start with movement improvement. We have good co-contraction in the hips, for example, with the internal and external rotation of the hip, the flexion, the extension of the hip, all of those things we've been working on in a daily protocol and specifically to where you may feel that you have more of a restriction or you tested with more of a restriction. So for example, with a biker, uh, with a cycling uh, triathlete, somebody who let's say does more cycling in especially 70.3 to full Ironman, right? They might focus on the bike more like Ben does. Just doing some movements with internal rotation of the hip uh, post-bike tends to be an excellent recovery tool, but it's also an auxiliary tool where you're going to be able to start to connect the dots, if you will, again, within your hip so that they're now that hip is a little bit more, again, centrated. So why that works, though, is because now the back, the lower back isn't getting torqued on, right? And the obliques, this is, of course, kind of your side on your side on each side. We're looking at an external oblique and an internal oblique and the external oblique. It's going to help to um, stabilize you there on the bike, especially. But then when you are pulling up and you are 
the bike is more concentric, obviously, with your quads and your legs, you're doing a lot of hammering down concentrically on the bike, but you are working on keeping that spine nice and stable there. So that requires very, very strong lateral line from your armpit down to your hip to be able to hold that brace. So the the inner oblique is doing a lot of work there too. And then with the run, we are talking about a lot of uh, dynamic trunk control. So again, you are steering your hips, keeping your hips forward when you run, keeping them down so that you can set your knee up and bring force down to the ground. So um, that means to me that that is imperative for all three sports. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And the other follow-up I have is on the breathing patterns that you mentioned. And I think you said uh, longer uh, uh, longer uh, exhalations uh, than inspirations. So so what, what does that mean? Do you, do you prescribe some specific breathing patterns, like two seconds in, three seconds out, and, and it's all nasal? Is that how... Or can you clarify that a little bit? Absolutely. Yes, sir. So in the beginning, especially when an athlete starts their protocol, I talk about this in the videos I have, but it's all nasal breathing. Or some people have a hard time with nasal breathing because they may have like a deviated septum. So they just do not feel comfortable with that at all. So I say at least go tongue in cheek, which means that you're going to take the tip of your tongue to the roof of your mouth. And that's going to provide a little bit of resistance, but it's also going to mean that you're not dropping your jaw open, right? So I'm Italian, I'm showing you everything, but I know not everybody's seeing it, right? So, um, and then when I say cheek, that means when you are breathing out, you kind of feel your cheeks flapping a little bit, right? Or loose. So that resistance is the first part to me. But then with the actual breathing patterns, when we're doing protocol, this should be slow. This should not be fast momentum. It's not about that right now, especially not in your protocol and your priming to get ready for your main session. So I talk about breathing out longer than you're breathing in. But if I'm going to give a pattern or a goal, I'll give a seven count where I say, okay, I want you to actually breathe out for seven. And then you're going to breathe back in through your nose only. And you may do that for five. Okay. So people will actually start to breathe out slower as they gain more confidence and more control of the breathing patterns. So that's where initially maybe their seven, five is a little bit faster, say maybe five seconds for the whole cycle. Whereas when they get really good at it, it may be 10 seconds for one repetition. And that's why I really push for people to start with movement improvement, to start with good protocol, because it does start with uh, good breathing. And when you breathe better, as I said before, it's the mulligan for better joint movement as well. So if I have somebody bring their arm over their head, you might see that they pop their top out like this, right? So what I, what I just showed is that you are lifting your chest up and you're kind of separating or getting a long belly as you lift your arm overhead. And people will feel like I have better range, but really all you did was you moved out of position in order to get that arm further over your head. Whereas what I want you to do is get the 
uh, Bobby calls it your arrowhead, but your sternum down as you're breathing. So when you breathe out longer, that internal rotation of the ribs allows that arrowhead to go down and allows that joint in your shoulder to move and rotate up. So that's that's always to me a great mulligan to use is go back to your breathing, learn to own that breathing pattern. As you start to go into more dynamic patterns, then that breathing obviously gets faster and it does become more visceral. So I want it to be cognitive in the beginning and during the protocol, during the warm up, and then I want it to be more visceral. So eventually when you are doing very explosive work, your sides are getting wide, let's say when you are in a hip hinge position like a deadlift, and we can get into that more later, your sides are naturally getting wide and and bracing and supporting that spine right where it needs to. So there's there's a lot to it. And that's why in the beginning, I think it's all about just mastering those basics, getting into those isometrics like we talked about, and really understanding how that should feel before you start loading more. Because I like to say, there's no courage in defeated mechanics. Um, Bobby said that one time at a seminar, and I've been saying it ever since. And it just, it makes total sense to me. Lifting more weight or going with movements that are more complicated requires more skill set. And it starts with your breathing. Mm. Um, so let's continue on. What happens once you, once you have mastered the isometric part of the training? Yeah. So from there, I do like to start to work on moving your peripherals, starting to work on, say, reaching your arm out in that plank position like we discussed and really looking to see that you can hold that anti-rotation position. So, for example, what I normally would see if somebody's doing, say, renegade rows where they're in that plank position, but they are rowing one arm back with a dumbbell as one arm's down to the ground, they're just rotating through their hips. They're not actually controlling that movement. So once we get that feeling of how the hips steer and how you're keeping your hips down in that position, then you should be able to start working on moving that limb one at a time. And I call it actively because we go through sort of now from isometric to quasi isometric, which basically means very slow movement patterns. Okay. So you're still working on the breathing, but you are moving now very slowly. It may take, say, five seconds to do a good repetition where you're holding for a few seconds when you're doing that repetition. And then from there, you go to more dynamic patterns. So now you've really owned the movement. You're in control, ready to roll. You have that coordination control down. So now let's start going with moving that weight a little bit faster or adding more weight to the movement or a combination of those things. So it's isometric to active to dynamic and then, you know, strength always precedes power, but then you should really start to look at, for example, speed of the bar or how quickly you're able to overcome load. Okay, so so if we uh, break that down a little bit more, so when you are when you're in that dynamic phase, first you master the movement, but then you would start to build strength, and then you eventually get to a point where you 
where you actually start to look at the the speed of movement under load is that is that right yeah absolutely and you know you mentioned before about ben and his his training and i'll go back to that for a second because i think it's important for people to understand that ben spent his first few weeks so 20 days i usually write things up in uh, three-week blocks, okay? So I am looking at testing and retesting every single block. We have to know what's working and we have to know where we need to focus more. So when we do that, I can see, okay, you are now gold standard in these tests, okay, in these assessments. And now I want to focus on where you're not. So we will put most of our focus on those deficits or those challenges and we will start to really map out a better plan for you. Now, that's something that Ben took several months to build on. And I would even say his first year, we really didn't do anything too fancy. And I think people would really be surprised at what he worked on being very basic. Like, are you kidding me? This is a guy who's training to be the best in the world. But the second year, he had built up such a strong base. And I can get into this a little bit too. It's called, I call it relative strength index testing, where we are now going to be looking at qualifying by being on a, uh, at least on the podium, if you will. I have a gold standard, a silver standard, and a bronze standard. And believe it or not, even for someone like Ben, there were places where he was not on the podium. And I can, I can give some examples of that. But my main goal is to help that athlete get on the podium in all those areas before we worry about more complicated or more complex patterns or progressions. I think that that is a, a huge mistake, I guess I would say, that a lot of uh, programs I see, that they're going to bells and whistles. And it's, it's to me... I want that athlete to be engaged and I want them to be excited about what they're doing. So having those standards where they can see, wait a minute, I should be able to do this leg lift, right? In a side bridge, right? So the frontal plane I'm working on lifting leg, probably people know that one pretty well. I should be able to get at least 20 reps. But when I look at the traditional leg lift, the, the hip is actually rolling back every time they lift their leg up. They're not steering their hips. They're not keeping their hips steering forward as they lift that leg up. And if you look at the glute med, which is like a stabilizer for your hip, right? If you look at that glute med, it may be that hip may be popping out to the side. So they're not actually recruiting that glute med the way they might think they are. And they're just going off of a burn. Like, yeah, I can do 20 and it's burning. It must be good. And don't get me wrong. It's not that it's bad, but I think that we have to really look at movements as it's not how much you lift, especially in the beginning. It's how you lift. It's how you are moving. And a lateral leg lift, by the way, for many is a progressive overload. <laughs> it, it is a hard strength movement to do. It is, if you will, heavy for them, right? So the reason why I look at stuff like this is because all of the times we I worked um, for several years just um, assisting in clinics. So I am an LMT as well. 
And so I was, you know, I that, was able- That means your manual therapy, massage? Yes, right, exactly. And I've actually never really done that. Um, I've never actually been an LMT as in come and see me and I'll give you a massage. I did it so that I was qualified to work in a PT clinic and to help athletes and to learn. That's the main reason why I did it. Um, but because of that, I learned so much more than I would have just as I feel like a strength coach alone. And so I used a lot of those concepts that I learned. But I would see, for example, that an athlete was when they would squat, they would shift to one side. So let's say they're shifting to their right side when they squat. They say, okay, so what do we have to check here? Well, oftentimes, most times, you put them into that lateral leg lift and they, they can't resist you. They, they, have, they have very little strength there on that side, whereas on the other side, they, they may be quite strong. And I've had athletes that can do, let's say, 20 reps on one side and the other with proper form, they may do four reps if they're lucky, hmm. right? And so that gives me an obvious goal with that athlete. But instead of that athlete thinking, oh, well, this, you know, this is a simple movement. I'm beyond this. They're, they're now challenged and athletes need to be challenged. Like, meet that challenge, hit that 20 on each side. So that becomes our main focus. In other words, why, why not work on that in the beginning before you start loading up your squat? Because that's what I mean. There's no courage in defeated mechanics. You're, when you load that squat, but you have that deficit, to me, it's a recipe for disaster and your strength is relative to your skill set. That's what it comes down to. Right. So you want your strength to work for your skill sets. End of story. That precedes power, that improves power. That's always the basics. So if you understand that, and I know every athlete that light bulb goes on when they go, Man, I took these tests and I'm not on the podium in three of them. Right. That becomes the goal and the challenge. And these athletes, you know, they attack it, man. So they're they're getting after it. Ben Canute, you know. Gwen Jurgensen, I mean, you know, at Florida Duffy, all these athletes, uh, Kevin McDowell, you know, they, they're, they're not happy when they're not on the podium, right? So, so working with these athletes, I feel like it's about lighting up that fire and saying, wow, like, I thought this would be easy and it's not, but I'm going to take that challenge on. Now, once we get there, now we can start looking at, okay, how can we even get stronger relatively for your skill sets? And that's where specific movement patterns with quote unquote weights can come in. So, so when we're talking here about being on the podium, that is for the relative strength index. Is that yes, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. So can yeah. you explain, explain that? Is it a battery of tests? What, what is it? Yeah, it's, so I just have spent, especially the last 10 years, I'd say, looking at these tests and which ones are most relevant, which ones will transfer, transfer to sport more, right? So um, I have worked with, in the last Olympics, Gabby Williams, who was a professional, is a professional basketball player and, uh, and medaled in the last Olympics. She has some different tests that I don't give endurance athletes as much because it, it does matter to me 
where our focus is going to be. There's only so much we can work on. So with the endurance athlete in mind, I'm looking at, well, I already mentioned a lateral leg lift. I'm looking at the Copenhagen as being also a really important standard. And the, the Copenhagen is kind of like that leg lift, but in reverse. So one thing that people can do before I get further along, if you get confused by this, on Triathlete Magazine, I put out a boot camp. So you could always go there and check out some of these movements. That's It's all free uh, that I did for the magazine. But the Copenhagen, getting back to that, is going to be where you have your leg lifted up for the, for the test where you're at the same height as where your greater trochanter is, or in other words, if you go by the side of your hip, just under the top of your hip, you'll feel like a little bony prominence. That is the level that you would get your foot to. And a lot of times in camps, I just have performance partners find that hip level with their performance partner first, put their hands there, then have their partner put their foot at that height. So it, it is specific to their mechanics, to their femur length or their leg length, right? So then uh, we want to be able to pull the body up from the ground, okay, instead, in other words, working on the groin and the medial line, okay, and the deep core musculature. And I'll get back to that in a second. Without spinning your hips back, especially, that's what people want to do, keeping the hips steering forward and pulling your, your body up until you are long and strong in one line, okay? Now, that test there is the one that I have found most people have a lot of trouble with, especially triathletes in the beginning. And I'm talking in anywhere from beginner to elite, and in part that it, you can look at how much mass we use on the outside of our leg and how much we're working on that muscle mass or on our quads, but not as much through our groin and our medial line. Okay. So when we do that test, it's not uncommon that the athlete actually can't even start there. It's, um, it, to me, I actually want to go to the basics again. I want to do isometrics where they're going to hold that position with a bent knee on a bench. It's not even as high because the groin is quite, quite exposed and they have not done anything really to build up. And so it can be a, uh, progression just to get to the test itself. That's why for Triathlete Magazine, the test I gave was actually with a bent knee instead. And um, I'll give you an example here to close this up with Annie Fuller. She's an athlete that Jim Vance works with as well. I met her at a camp a few years back and she's one of those athletes I just really believe in. I think she's got a, a big future ahead of her. And so I started working with her a couple years ago. She was finishing up collegiate uh, running. And so the steeplechase really did a number on her. We had a series of hamstring injuries, things that we really needed to address there. And her Copenhagen, really the true test itself, she was, well, really at a zero in the beginning, but when you talk about her progressions, we finally got her to where she could do some reps at that true uh, range of motion. And 
on one side, again, we're looking at more of a deficit of getting in four good reps. So I would say, okay, we we're going to start off with 10 total reps as our goal, but instead of doing four reps, we'll do two. So you're not going to complete failure. So you can actually come back and do it again with good technique. I don't want to get anywhere near where it's going to be sloppy. And we're going to kind of put this into more of a uh, fractionalized set. Or in other words, when we give her some time off between those sets, she's going to do build up to five sets of two reps, right? So she gets 10 reps total. Eventually, you can see where I'm going with this. Eventually, she's doing 10 reps in a row. And now we've built her up. The goal is to keep her in season at being able to do about 15 reps per side, okay, to maintain those benefits. Now, where that really showed up was with our 12 hop performance test. With the 12 hop test, this is especially going to be beneficial to show with your running what kind of power you're actually able to produce on each leg. And this is one that Bobby's been doing for years with his athletes. So 12 hops, measure it out. How far can you get on a single leg, right? And then you do the other leg. Well, she was over a three foot difference between the two legs initially. So no wonder why we have some hamstring issues, right? Now, after building that process up, she was um, only a, a little less than an inch apart between the two sides, and she increased by 11 feet on both sides. So that, to me, again, see where I'm going with this? You have tests, you have retest. I pick these movements because I know they work because we can relate it now right to their performance. And of course, even the 12 hop test doesn't mean everything. The gold standard is how is she now performing on the run, right? So that's, yeah. that, that's another example of that. Um, and yeah, I could go on through each, each test, but I just want to make sure people yeah, understand. No, ex examples are good. Uh, we don't have to go through the entire list, but what I do want to know is, do, when you start with an athlete, do you do both the initial movement assessment and the relative strength index tests at this, uh, from the beginning? Or do you do the strength tests a bit later on once you have worked on those basic movement skills? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the beginning, always movement improvement any time of the year. With athletes that are in season, Relative strength index testing, that may be a bit much for them to start with because believe it or not, they're still going to get sore from doing those movements initially and developing just some basic movement patterns with better overall connecting the dots with what you gained from your movement improvement. That's where I tend to go. So, um, with our products that we have, RunForm is the main product that we usually steer people towards. The banded dynamics that are in that product have all the basic movements. Like I, I heard Aaron Carson talking about how athletes need to understand how to hip hinge, right? Absolutely. So with that initial uh, banded dynamic phase, it's not just bands. These, these bands are not uh, the little mini bands. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the longer bands, okay, that have mm -hmm. very, various resistances. And we actually 
um, send those bands to people who, who, um, who want them right when they sign up. But this is where we don't just, uh, contract in movements, but we react. And so I find that we really can develop much better movement patterns in the beginning with just drills like that in season with an athlete. And so that's where I'll tend to go so that they can start to gain some strength and understanding. And once they are in their off season, that's when I tend to do more of the relative strength index testing because we need time to build up and we need to be able to focus on that. So I tend to go to that a little bit more in the um, postseason. All right. Yeah. And in terms of exercise selection, so it's clear that obviously a lot of that comes down to where the athlete is in their progression and what their weaknesses are that you're working on. Right. But do you also do some kind of maintenance? So if you have two clear weaknesses and, but then you have three things that are excellent and five things that are okay, do you also work on those things that are okay? Maybe you're on the podium, but you're not at the top of the podium if you if you see what i mean do you only work on weaknesses or do you also do maintenance work or just basic fund- fundamental work of some sorts yeah no that's a great question so to go back to annie and her copenhagens now that she has put in the time to build up to those in season we will maintain 15 reps we're not her full capacity might be 20 per leg about Okay, but we'll maintain 15 per side and we'll hit that once at least every 10 days in season. Okay, but when we look at racing season, I look at six weeks out from a race, although some people are racing more often than that. So what I will look at is when we are building or main gaining, if you will, right, where we're actually just either maintaining our strength or even main or even gaining a little bit of additional strength in these cycles. And it will go back to the movement patterns that we feel like we need to focus on the most, but we also will introduce for variety's sake, we don't want to get burnt out on the same movements, but we'll introduce some variations on protocol that we know that athlete needs or in other words, on movement patterns that we know are really important for the athlete. So let me explain this, I think, with the uh, the lunge. Okay, so lunging is is obviously a really great movement for strength training, especially when you're looking at the single leg aspect, right? So in the process that we do, I will show isometric lunge, hold that position. Okay. Then we will go through our quasi isometric slow lunges. Okay. But now we're in season. And so we will look at getting into a Bulgarian. So we're even going to have our back foot elevated and now we're getting ready more for in season to really get that strength up. So we're doing that single leg Bulgarian lunge wonderful for strength and range of motion, all of those things. But then once we are getting closer to our uh, our main races, and we want to start to look at putting in some of the plyometrics, we want to put in maybe um, a clapping Bulgarian, I call it, where you have to push off the ground 
with with that leg that's in front of you, you're pushing off the ground explosively, you're clapping your hands under your thigh, right? And we're doing that for about five repetitions. And that's a very ballistic movement pattern. Now that's a really, really beneficial movement pattern. We are obviously working a lot on what's relative now, especially let's say for our running where if you look at the hamstring, for example, the hamstring is going to help to control your shank, right? So your leg. And when you your leg gets ahead of your knee, when I say leg, that lower leg gets ahead of the knee, we're in trouble, right? We have that late gait, and then we have all kinds of force that's coming down and we're leaking energy and we're losing all this uh, good power. And we might be getting some injuries from that like uh, slapping that foot down, getting shin splints or knee pain or lower back pain, et cetera. So when you do a movement like this, especially once you've built up to it, you're really connecting the dots and you're getting your nervous system to be really, really responsive, okay? To stop your foot from getting out further in front of you, you're just getting that knee set up in the air and then and then beating gravity down, beating gravity down, right? So that's a wonderful movement. But now I will tell you what I found at least is that once you get closer, you're in championship phase, no more single leg work because that athlete's doing a lot of speed work already, right? They're, they're, they're putting a lot on their system on single leg on the road or the track or wherever they're doing it. So I go to more bilateral work because you can get your feet off the ground that much quicker, that much more explosively. You can reduce the foot ground contact time significantly with two legs. So something as simple as really get, getting your rating up with a jump rope for a lot of people, that's all I focus on in the beginning. They should be able to do 180 skips or more in a minute. Okay, so 180 jump ropes in a minute, okay, or more. So like a, a Ben Canute can do around 200 and I think it's 212, I believe. Um, but at least 180. And for me, I'm six foot two. So quite honestly, being a little bit taller, I'm about 186. And I'm very happy with that. Okay. But in other words, looking at reducing the amount of uh, impact and also the recovery that you need to really sharpen up for a race. Okay. And lastly, I'll say that with time under tension, as we start off with something that's um, really, let's say, challenging for dynamic trunk control with Ben, we'll start off with about 20 seconds. We're really challenging that. And we take that movement that he's used to. Now we're going faster, but we will do it for 10 seconds. And then to sharpen up for that race, you see, we had a tree we had to cut down. We had four hours to do it. We spent three hours sharpening the ax, right? So now we're not trying to get any more fit out of fitness out of them, right? We are just trying to get everything so that it's spring loaded, bam, ready to go in control, ready to roll baby, right? So we're taking that same drill again down to under 6.5 seconds. In other words, it's a lactic. It is explosive only. And it's very purposeful for fast switch, but 
we work on concentric movements where we focus on that so that the recovery is much, much faster. So we take the loading out as much as possible. We, we focus on the concentric, the pushing power, if you will, and we get that down to about five to six seconds. And we just do that for a, uh, a couple sets, maybe three sets at the most, usually with somebody like, like Ben. So that's, that's kind of the evolution throughout the year. Uh, if that if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And and how long would the rests be between sets in that phase? <laughs> I love it. I love it. You you have great questions. Uh, so another big one that I really have to work on with for athletes, especially you guys are you guys. I mean, we. I I, I guess I'm in this category. Hard workers and not, it's like, if you're resting, man. So let me show, I like examples, like stories. Hopefully this, this is where people like to listen, but I had this guy, Matt Balzer, and he's phenomenal athlete, local guy here in town. First real, like more, uh, you know, higher level triathlete that I, that I worked with. And this was now, uh, 15 years ago or so that I started working with him, I believe. And so he, he was, he came 12th at, at Xterra nationals and he really wanted to win. So a year later, 36 seconds per mile faster on the same course won by, I believe, uh, close to two minutes. How did he do that? Okay. If I had to, if I had to qualify it to one thing, I made him rest. <laughs> I made him rest. So I know like one of the things that people talk about, hill repeats. Let me just bring up hill repeats. And I want to say too, Bobby has been my biggest influence when it comes to this stuff. So he was doing these insane hill repeats. And in Xterra especially, you've got to run up this long, long, steep grade for a couple of miles really, right? So I get it. You have to do that kind of work. But what I did is I put it in reverse on him. We started with strides and we did that up a uh, five to 7% grade. And we just did some strides and I would have him walk back down carefully, but backwards, backwards in part, because whenever possible, I think we should be training in reverse just walking backwards, skipping, um, things like that, or, or doing pogos backwards, things like that helps with your proprioception. Cause you're taking your eyesight away. You just have to make sure you're being safe about it. Anyway, also make sure that he's going slow enough back down the hill. And then, so we started with that and we built him up to eventually doing 20 seconds fast as he could go. But we, then went to a higher or a steeper grade. And so we now at about 10% to 12% grade. And, you know, you got to find the hills that work for you in your area, or potentially you could do things like this on a treadmill, but I don't feel like it's the same effect. Um, but sometimes you do what you got to do. Anyways, he went to that and we started working on just six and a half seconds. How fast can you, can you go? right? And then we raced, right? So, you know, th those kind of things are what I believe um, really do go missing in plans to talk about recovery. Because when he was doing the 22nd hill repeats, I had him resting for three minutes and 40 seconds. Yeah. 
Okay. It's classic, classic sprint interval training. Right. And, and about how many endurance athletes are actually doing that, right? No. What, what he was taught and what he did was he would run back down and he would do it again. And so even though that was just the main thing that we changed with him, we obviously found that now uh, we'll talk about sets. I wanted him to build up to being able to do uh, 10 to 12 really good quality sets. And what that meant is that we measured out again, measure and remeasure, test and retest. We measured out how far he could get, but he had to be able to keep hitting that for the entire session. If he missed one, okay, we try it again. If he missed another one, we're done. So initially we might stop it, um, at five reps. Okay. And then uh, eventually we made it all the way up for our hardest session at 12, where he's meeting that goal. And then when we went back to shorter, now we can actually cover more ground than we did previously. And I'll just wrap this up with that is true also for strength training. Ben, biggest thing I meet with him. He's at his level. I meet with him for every session he does. And we could certainly talk about that because right now it's all about less is more minimal effective dosing. But he oftentimes would just start getting into his next set. And I'd have to, I'm on Zoom with him. I'd say, Ben, where are you going, buddy? Let's, uh, let's do, let's, let's do some dynamic movement patterns. Let's do some active recovery. Let's work on our breathing, but we're not going for another couple minutes here, brother. Right. So a lot of times, especially as you get more explosive, I'm looking at taking lots of rest, um, seven to 12 parts rest, oftentimes with the most explosive movement patterns. And so that's, that's oftentimes, I think what has to change when it comes to trying to get stronger is we actually have to allow ourselves rest. We can't turn it into uh, another session that seems uh, similar to our conditioning. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I mean, you mentioned Ben's training and meeting him. Maybe we take that as an example. What is, uh, as we're speaking here mid-April, what does a typical strength training week look like for Ben? Yeah. Okay. So right now, Ben trains three days a week on average. Okay. Those three sessions, they they start off... And I will say real quickly, in his postseason, after World Championships, after Ironman Arizona, I didn't want to talk to him for at least two or three weeks. And he was also having his second child with his wonderful wife, Courtney. And so just enjoy your time and get refreshed, right? So going into his training we're starting off with about 20 minutes and, and he's already, if you look at this now over two years in training with me. So he's, he's just doing one set of all these movements that he's already done in the past. I'm, I have ADD as you might've picked up from this conversation already, but I have to have used that as my superpower when being able to hyper-focus with an athlete like Ben, but also realize that everything needs to be documented. So I'll go back a, uh, a year before that and see what did we do there? What did I feel like we needed to work on a little bit more? I put my wish list up and I go back to those things. So we just do a set of each and only about 20 minutes, but then we build up to doing about 40 minutes for each session. 
And then once we get to where he is now, we're back down to 20 minutes. Right? So we took what he was used mm-hmm. to, and then we start cutting down the amount of time he spends because I realized that his the front seat is not strength training. It was only strength training for what I generally ask for is give me the front seat for about six weeks. Okay. And I'm happy. So Ben is now doing 20 minute sessions, three days a week in general. Two of those days are going to be uh, focused a little bit more around his maintaining his strength and, and um, gaining more power. Okay. And again, like I said, in 20 minutes, so I'm only selecting three to five movements. That's it. Then the third day is really more about a mobility day. And again, we're just really paying attention to, um, when I say mobility though, we kind of all have different definitions. I want him to use active mobility where he is focusing on, let's say, for example, with swimming, you have a internal rotation on your shoulder on one side that's, um, that's, that is affecting external rotation on the opposite side. So in other words, we're challenged in external rotation because we are shortened up on one side, right? So what I want to do is focus on mobility patterns where we're going to do some active stretches and then we're going to do just some work to really strengthen external rotation in the shoulder. And that that could be a lot of different drills. What I tend to do is find out from the athlete feedback. What do they like? How do they feel the next day? But also instead of test retest with things like that, I think about check recheck. So if I put his arm up to a, um, a surface like the squat rack and I have him try to externally rotate his shoulder on one side, we look at how far he can get from that squat rack in external rotation Okay, with his arm at 90 degrees. And then you look at the opposite side. Is there a difference between those two sides? If there is, then that is something that we want to really incorporate a little bit more. So I'll just give a brief example of this. You can take a kettlebell and you can put the kettlebell up. So you're holding the handle, but the bottom is up. Now we are going to internally and externally rotate the shoulder at 90 degrees and then right at your scapular plane where it's most comfortable for you to press up very slowly, you'll do that. Now that's kicking in those stabilizers and that's really a lot of times what the shoulder may need in order to fully function. And at Ben's point in his career or his training, his gym age with me, that's, uh, that's enough right there where we can start to see a difference. We may do some other drills with external rotation. Like if you're laying down on the ground, you have your head down so you don't get your traps lifting up and you just have your palms facing the ground and you just lift your arms off the ground in that T position. And he may be holding on to say five pound plates, which is hard in that T position to do and holding for five seconds. He may do something like got no monies where you just take a band and it looks like, hey, I got no money, hands by your pockets and just getting your thumbs to rotate back. Okay, so drills like that. And, you know, finally, I'll say we can see a lot of the movement needs that he has as simple as something like jumping rope. If you have 
the shoulder I was just talking about, if one is more internally rotated and people are trying to jump rope and they say, I just don't have the coordination for this. I keep tripping up on it. It may be that one shoulder is more internally rotated and you're not actually stabilizing. So now the jump rope is not going clean over your center and under your center. It's kind of going off to the side and you're tripping up. So look in the mirror and see, are my elbows equal space from my torso? Odds are one is maybe right up against your torso or very close to it. The other one is further out. That can show you right there. I have a need for mobility here that I need to address. And so, you know, again, these things can change depending on what are we emphasizing in the training right now, right? So an athlete may be a very, very strong um, cyclist and runner, but they're working a lot on their swimming and especially for something like ITU, right? I've got to get out of the water with this group and swimming has to be the main focus. Then right away, I would say, okay, awesome. Now let's look at making sure that you're keeping those shoulders really uh, strong, healthy, and congruent. And that relative strength is paid attention to for for the upper body, for, uh, for the effects of the constant cyclic motion of that swimming that may be there now that wasn't there a few months ago when you weren't prioritizing swimming as much. Mm. That's actually, I was going to ask that whether there is a big difference in how you would approach the strength training for triathletes versus single sport athletes. And, and that's a great example of that. I think, are there any other differences, uh, or, particular particular things to consider for triathletes when it comes to strength training versus single sport athletes? Yeah. So with pure runners, I like to work on maybe some hand-eye coordination work with um, even a speed bag, right? And so they don't get a lot of that. And so it sounds like what? Why would speed bags one of the easiest ways for me to do something like that to really work on what is what is a speed bag? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that's, um, I took boxing for a couple of years, had a coach and then realized that my running got better. And I was like, what? (laughs) So, uh, the speed bag, it just, it's a small, it's a small bag that hangs, um, from, uh, just above your head and you, you hit that bag with your right hand and then your left hand, but it's, it's not a heavy bag where you're, you're punching as hard as you can. I've seen it. I've seen it on TV. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And, and, um, I would say that, that I prefer that too, because if you're not hitting the bag with good technique and good coordination, good control, you're, you're not going to keep it up. Whereas, you know, with a heavy bag, it needs a little bit more technique involved. You could uh, end up hurting yourself a little bit easier and you can certainly load dysfunction easier with something like that. So speed bags, no brainer to me. Again, jump ropes, no brainer when it comes to things like that. But with triathletes, what I tend to find is that because they are focused on three things, what I want to do first and foremost is decide on what is the thing you need to work on more? And again, that can change. But in general, you go back to somebody like Annie. I know Jim on the last podcast was talking about her nervous system and how that gets a little bit more fried, if you will, or fatigued for her swimming because it takes so much technique, right? So I have to 
program her sessions around her swim. I have to pick one. So a pure runner, it's kind of easy. Like you're gonna, you're going to program around their main quality run sessions with a triathlete. It's like, well, I'm doing quality swim today, tomorrow I'm on the bike for five hours, you know, so it's becomes a little bit more complicated. You, uh, you want to look at though, what is your most important sessions where you need to really have a good ready state. And so I want to program around that and I want to recover around that. So it's work plus rest equals success with every athlete. And what I found is with triathletes, we really just, we need to pick where we need to have the most recovery. So I'll give you an example between Annie and Ben. So Annie, because the swimming is the priority and she's an ITU, she needs to be able to recover more around that swim. But we want to have like 48 to 72 hours before we really try to look at another more challenging set of, uh, or progression for her to do. So I will say with her, we're actually going to do it on your swim day, but after your swim. And I want to have this at least four hours minimum after the swim. But if we can get it even further and making sure that she's getting some good nutrition, taking, you know, taking some uh, rest and uh, and then hitting that session. But the swim comes first before she's fatigued. And then she has the most amount of time after that to be able to um, to recover from the strength as well. So whereas with Ben, he may actually do his swim session, come right home and meet me for his strength. Now, swimming is one of his stronger sports. And also, though, I think that because with Ben, I want to maximize recovery, I would rather him, you know, get a snack on the way home from his swim session, but actually hit that with me right away. So that his run, which is the bigger priority, he has the most amount of time. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm structuring that mainly around his quality run sessions, but I'm, I'm actually doing it after, um, his swim sessions, uh, immediately after a lot of times. So, you know, again, it's, it's kind of looking at the athlete and where their priorities lie. And if you take, um, notes, if you have a journal, a two minute journal, I think listeners can go a long ways. In other words, I learned this about myself and with other athletes, it gets overwhelming to write all this stuff down every single day. But if you say, okay, two minute rule, I'm just going to write down for two minutes, the main things that I'm feeling, the main things that I'm learning from the main progress I'm making, right? Because the, the worst thing is to make progress and not know how we did it or to stay in that cumulative injury cycle and not know why. And then you start to look at the patterns like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, my energy level is always like a six and a half after these sessions, 24 to 36 hours later, I'm noticing a lot of restrictions. Okay. That's where I should be preventative. That's where I should make sure I'm getting in some good recovery, some good protocol. And that is in itself a game changer for a lot of people. And uh, do you think if you compare triathlon and let's say running, is strength training equally important for both sports? Let's say you have 
an athlete in each sport that is kind of equally strong at the same level uh so you you can you can compare directly it's more about the sport demands than anything else does does triathlon have higher strength demands uh, as a sport than running and and also how do you think it differs between the different distances within triathlon yeah so i think that when it comes to strength training first of all I think it's important for everybody. So just, I'll get back to that. I really want to talk about that. But when it comes to your triathlete ITU, let's say, we're probably going to look at how much explosive work that we're doing. And we want to look at, obviously, with a shorter distance, how that athlete can can manage that over the three disciplines. So to me, what I might do is, shift the training so that with a good base still, but that we are working on that explosiveness, right? And with uh, 70.3 and above, I want to be able to hold posture longer. So in other words, if I have somebody like Ben, who's now shifting up and looking at even full Ironman distance, the whole idea is that we are able to hold that position and with less fatigue. That's the name of the game, right? At the last last 30 minutes of the race, who is able to maintain that form the best, right? And all things being equal, I'm saying. And I do believe that's been a big part of Ben's success with his ability to keep up with the world's best on the run now, whereas before that was a real challenge, right? So that strength training, very, very important for Ben, but it's all about, um, it's, it's all about having good intentional tension technique torque with every athlete. It's just that with Ben, I would say that we are looking at having maybe 20 to 40 second, uh, interval periods where I'm really challenging him to be able to, to, um, to, to hold that posture. And once I get it there, then I want to test him at 60 seconds. So in other words, those in that endurance, that strength endurance is really challenged. What I've noticed is that if you're in a really challenging progression, right about 40 seconds is where everybody starts to slow down, where everybody starts to really get challenged in their ability to hold their posture. Okay. So again, it's things that have to be built up to, but that's why in the relative strength index testing, I give they're a minute a piece because I know that people are like rock stars. A lot of times the first 20, 30 seconds. And then, so the reason why the numbers get better is because they start developing better strength economy doing those sessions. Okay. Whereas that's still all important for ITU, but I would probably also start looking a little bit more at uh, other variables like um, how m- how much ballistic work they are doing and maybe putting a stronger standpoint on what those numbers are, where they need to be for the shorter distances. Yeah. All right. So I'll let you loose on what you said that you would come back to a strength training is important for everybody. And, and maybe especially here, we can start to bring it towards um, applications for, for amateur athletes. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think of uh, Pamela Bruxton. She's an athlete that I've worked with now for over two years. Bobby works with her as well. And 
she did the Ironman World Championships last year, but the two two year process was uh, really what it was about to me because she wasn't able to run without pain at all. And she had pain, in other words, the first step of her run. And over that process, we were able to get her across that finish line completely pain-free and having fun. And that was the most important part. I know Jim talks a lot about how you want to be excited to get to the line. You want to feel good. And that's all she wanted. She just wanted to get to that line feeling good. And she was obviously, she had a great time out there. She met her goal. She's at the world championships. She's finally doing it. So what we looked at with somebody like her though, is how important it was for her to be able to build her base, not for the elites, not for the podium, not for any of that, but just for longevity. All right. So that part of the conversation, and this, this should address all of our listeners as well. I believe everyone should do or follow a plan. Okay. A, a workout is just to me random and it's just the workout of the day, if you will. Whereas a plan it's structured and I don't look at plans for less than two years. So if I'm personally going to work with somebody, uh, I want a two-year commitment minimum, okay? And when you look at the longevity side of things with Pam over two years, she was able to get herself pain-free. But more importantly to me is we're looking at her being able to do this in her 70s. Right. We're looking at that now as being much more believable. I don't think she would ever have believed that before. She was just trying to finish the world championships and maybe call it good, like forever, because she she wanted to do it, it was on her bucket list. And it's like, well, let's not only do that, but let's do this so that you can keep doing it if, if that's what you want. And that is what she's doing. That's what she wants. So when you look at... Um, most athletes, and this is where I would say Jim was talking about more of the elites last time and getting that extra three to 5% and your time that it takes you to put in strength training on top of swim, bike, run. And I get it. Like I get that that is the thought process is, well, if, if you barely have time to get in all your swim, bike, run, then strength training is just going to overload you. But not if you have a plan. And that plan to me is that you should commit to 10 minutes of protocol. That protocol can include things like DMDs, which is in our run form program. And it's not just about going through the movements and getting your core temperature up by a degree, but it's about being specific about what your skill set requires. So 10 minutes, and then you're off on your run. If you lose 10 minutes on that run because you did your DMDs first, I promise you, you're going to run longer, stronger, not just... What, it, what is a DMD? Oh, dynamic mobility drills. Oh, got Sorry. it. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I get... Uh, so yeah, dynamic mobility drills. And we, Bobby and I always say, we use that as a diagnostic. Right? So we can look at how people are moving, doing these drills and we can easily a lot of times see what the problem is in their gait when they run. Now, Bobby is the expert on run gait. I'm not there. I would say Bobby is Everest. I'm, I'm 
I may be uh, the mountain below Everest, but Bobby's Everest. And what I have learned, though, over all these years of doing camps with Bobby is what he's looking at through these DMDs. And what I can tell people is that if they master the DMDs, the dynamic mobility drills are connecting the dots. They're getting the nervous system to connect more and more and more every time you do them. And so if that's all you do, it's all you do is master that before you go on a run, you say, okay, I'm going to give it 10 minutes. In the beginning, that could mean that you're just doing maybe one or two drills because you're learning and you're trying to get it down. Well, that's 1%. You're getting better. Eventually, you can do 10 DMDs before you go out for your run. And you can get that in 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 8 to 12 minutes. And I see this over and over and over again. But it's the hard part is trying to convince people, right? But I see it. Athletes that stick to this, over time, they do get better, even if that means that they've lost 10 minutes of their run, okay? And it takes time. The first three weeks, it's more cognitive. You may even feel like you're feeling a little sloppy or that you're overthinking your run form. That's okay. It becomes visceral. And our program... Uh, I do want to say that we, in run form, we picked movement patterns that are going to help to graduate you towards more and more visceral responses or automatic for you to be able to hold your position and let that posture flow out of you, right? So that's where I would say, at the very least, you want to be able to commit to that and build your way up from that. And then when I talk about doing your movement improvement, that's only going to complement it. Eventually, you get into your base work that I've explained through your isometrics, through doing more of your relative strength index, on and so forth. But if that athlete is averaging 20 minutes twice a week and doing 10 minutes of movement improvement protocol, DMDs, those sort of things. And they're doing that daily. They're feeding their nervous system daily. They're going to have much, much better success in the long term from everything I've seen. It's just you have to give it a little bit of time for it to start working. But I've never worked with an athlete or even had an athlete that gives me feedback about our programs six weeks, especially and on they're just big, big fans of what's going on for them because they are now starting to get in control, ready to roll. So that's, so, you know, that's so, important. So, so to summarize what, what you would uh, shoot for would be the DMDs, the dynamic mobility drills every day or before every time you run. Yeah, I think with the DMDs, I like to do those every time before I run for sure. And then what I generally tend to work on is with movement improvement. And that'll be things that I'm looking at in our protocol for uh, the uh, the assessments that I mentioned. I'll tend to do those on alternate days and I'll switch them. Just in other words, I give myself a goal for that 10 minutes. But yeah, DMDs I usually do before my runs. I have obviously mastered them more at this point. If you do DMDs daily initially and you have the time for it, fantastic. But what I want to what, what I want to say to people is do do something for ten minutes, okay? Yeah. That is going to help you. And even if it's not my thing, right? But with it, when it comes to the strength training, 
even 20 minutes of strength training where you're initially working on just holding isometric positions, doing that a couple times a week, that's going to be so much better for you. Even again, if that means that you decide, okay, I'm going to have 20 minutes less time on the bike today. I promise you that's worth it. So that's where I say, I, I really believe everyone needs to do it. It's just that I think people get overwhelmed with how much they need to do. It doesn't take a lot. It's very robust and minimal effective dosing, especially when you're looking at the long game, right? You're not, it's not about trying to get overly, you're not trying to get fit in the next six weeks. We're just trying to build layers over time. And that to me is true fitness. That's true readiness at any, I'll, I'll give you my example here is I had my business partner ask me, Hey, we have this Reno towel odyssey run that we do every year his team, I mean, and, uh, we, we lost a guy this year. We really want you to do it with us. They're running approximately 30 miles each. Okay. Or about 50 K each, uh, on this team. And I said, sure. Yeah, I'll fill in. I haven't trained for that. I generally get in, um, with the schedule I have, I'm very consistent with about say 20 to 30 minutes on my woodway and keeping up with my strength training. As I mentioned, most of my strength training sessions that I do personally are about 30 minutes and three days a week. So, but I'm going to be able to get ready for that in the next uh, eight weeks. I'm, I'm, I'm always at what in my mind around 90% with what I do because of consistency. And that is where I think we can all be a little bit closer to that. We're not trying to be at 100% all the time. Let's, let's be at maybe 85, 90% just with more consistency. But again, I promise you, you're going to feel stronger. You're going to see those results on the swim, bike and run just by dedicating a little time. So what did I just describe? It's, you can be down to a 20 minute session, two days a week, that's 40 minutes. And then you're doing 10 minutes of DMDs of protocol. You're, you're doing maybe 60 to 90 minutes uh, that you're giving that to yourself and uh, per week. And that is going to help to substantially bring up your, uh, I call it prehab, right? Helping to prevent injuries and your performance. But most importantly, let's look at longevity. Let's be able to do this for a lifetime. Mm, yeah. Um, we're starting to wrap up here because we've been going for a long time. I have a couple of questions still on strength training let me just uh think which one did i want to yes so one that i want to ask is and i think i know the answer probably but uh what are your thoughts around do you need a gym to to do good strength training no you don't um yeah kevin mcdowell i mentioned before he was doing a lot of weights before i worked with him and then he ended up finding out that he really enjoyed just traveling with the bands that I uh, had him set up with and doing protocol and strength training there. There's there's a lot of benefit to that too. So I do have a triathlon strength program that's only with bands or with run form. We only use bands in the, uh, the uh, strength work there because we know that people have a tough time getting to the gym. That's one more thing that they have to do. So I will say that that's where 
Jim and I would agree that there's times where Ben really needs to progress and for variety's sake alone, weights can come in really handy and they can they can really help to bring a little bit more uh, to your sessions when you can get to it. But there's so many more athletes I've worked with that do we, we just need to get strong enough so that we can express that strength through our skill set. We need to be able to hold our posture like we talked about before. So there's there's a point where we can do enough with body weight bands and balls, things like that, and we can do it at home. Uh, and that's honestly why I developed systems that it's all about using bands and anchor points, and you can do it in your hotel room, right? So have a lot of athletes that travel a lot and they're literally able to do their entire swim, bike, and run sessions. And that's what I that's what I've designed in their hotel room. And, you know, so in fact, you know, going towards the Olympics, that's a lot of times what we had to do back with COVID and uh, they would be overseas and they couldn't actually leave their hotel room. So uh, I learned a lot from that process because I will tell you, I'll finish with this, but because I've always, I had a gym for 20 years, a brick and mortar gym. And so I was kind of biased towards getting to the weights. Now, I do think that the conversation around you've got to go heavy right? Should at least be brushed upon here because to me, when we, what is heavy, what is relative to you? A pull-up is really heavy for a lot of people to do. There are always ways to design a program so that you get the appropriate challenge. So hormonally you respond, right? So I've got a guy who's 73 and he can, he can do pull-ups. Generally what I see is that um, we built him up to be able to to do, uh, let's see, I believe it was 18 pull-ups on his max, okay? But what I do now is I say, okay, I want you to pause when I tell you to pause. You're, so he's coming up, pause, and he's got to stick it. He's got to hold it. Come up, pause, right? So there's ways of making that pull-up even harder. But the biggest thing I want to ask you, this is this just, I, hopefully this this crosses over really well, but the pull-up, What's the main muscle you think of or training purpose of a pull-up? Uh, I think of lats, uh, shoulders. Um, yeah. Right. And that's, uh, you answered perfectly because that's, that's what everybody, uh, is told. And, and I agree, but when it comes to my, uh, favorite movement for deep core, it's the pull-up, mm. but it, I do it a little bit differently in that I will tend to take a foam roll. I'll put it between the thighs. I'll make sure that we shorten that abdominal chain. So our hips are coming slightly forward and then holding that position through our abdominal chain and squeezing on the foam roll as in person, I'll try to knock that foam roll out, right? Or you just imagine that's happening, but you're squeezing there as you're doing your pull-up. Okay. And then the other big thing to me is because people tend to, uh, again, defeated mechanics where they tend to roll their shoulders in to get further up. A lot of it goes into the front of their shoulder, their bicep, right? They feel mostly in their bicep a lot of times from doing a pull-up, right? So there are progressions for that. But the point is, I know that my 73-year-old has mastered the pull-up because when he gets done with that, and we'll go to maybe five reps, 
be as best he can do. It's his center. It's his deep core musculature that's just can't take another rep. It's not his arms. It's not his arms. So yes, it, it absolutely, especially the lats. Yes, absolutely works the lats, but I can't tell you how many collegiate swimmers that, uh, have done pull-ups all their life. Right. Cause that's big for, for, uh, for swimming. And then I go to test them and these elite athletes fool you every time they're really good at momentum. <laughs> as soon as I say, mm-hmm. no, I want to see, I want to see this technique. I want to see you know, that full range. As soon as I start doing that, they're, they're struggling to do one. And what we normally see is that one shoulder will pop up or elevate, especially when they're trying to, um, come under load. In other words, while they are trying to get themselves pulled up, they're actually doing it with that compensation right from the get go. So what I got to start with is how do we start recruiting more of the, the, uh, the accessory muscles like your lower traps, right? And that's what it comes back down to is, well, that's why we start off with the isometrics, the movement improvement. That's why we start off with auxiliary emphasis so that when we get loaded, it's just like that leg lift example I gave before lateral leg lift in the squat, same idea here with the pull-up, right? So ultimately we want to be able to focus on movement patterns that are going to serve us and create the amount of stress where we can progress. So it doesn't have to be heavy weights. You know, there, uh, I, Gwen Jorgensen was always about, um, getting coordination and control a little bit. If you look at her sessions, I don't think anybody would say it was heavy, but for her, it was creating the right amount of resistance, the right amount of torque and tension she needed to make progress. And how do we know? Because we saw it in her progress. So, you know, I just want to reiterate that because um, I've done it myself where I have pushed something like a deadlift too heavy, trying to get three times my body weight when really, what is that going to do to serve me? All right. So I had an 800 meter runner they got to two and a half times their body weight. And I had a triple jumper that did the same and a high jumper athletes like that. I think it's, it's more relevant that we look at, uh, how much times their body weight they can go like two to three times their body weight. But with endurance athletes, that's not my main focus. And I don't think that it's as necessary. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, final question before the rapid fire questions, if you can give two or three key mistakes for listeners to avoid when it comes to strength training, common mistakes to avoid, what would that be? Yeah, just the biggest mistake I think this day and age is education versus influence, right? So key mistake to me is that we see the bells and whistles out there and we think I should be able to do that. So similar to what I was just talking about, but we'll take Olympic lifts. Like Olympic lifts are great if that is your main focus and it takes a couple years or more to really execute them well. So should we be doing Olympic lifts or should we be doing movement patterns like let's say with a plyo ball, um, throwing a med ball, those kind of movements there so that we can get what we need out of that coordination, out of that power output, but it doesn't take nearly as much of a learning curve. So in other words, you see where I'm going with this is I get endurance athletes all the time where they may have even 
come to me with some injuries, some things they're dealing with. And then I was taught at Athletes Performance Institute how to coach the Olympic lifts. But that also made me realize how much time has to go into that. And endurance athletes don't have that kind of time. Again, we have to go to what's the what's the minimal effective dose and what is the easiest learning curve for these movements. So no matter what programs I design, it always keeps that in mind. So forget about the bells and whistles, get the basics down the best and use movements that you are in control, ready to roll. Don't worry about trying to get into a movement pattern just because so-and-so on social media does it. And there are some even Ironman athletes that can do some Olympic lifts. Maybe they did that in their high school, uh, you know, sports and learn that and they got really proficient at it. I don't have any problems with them doing that, but very few of those athletes come to me. I don't think that that it really exists most time, right? The sport picks the athletes and generally we are looking at athletes that, uh, are a little bit more orientated, I think towards the, the basics. Uh, I've heard before on the podcast talking about motor morons. I'll just say I'm a motor moron. So I know how hard it is to be able to master those kind of movements. And I would just prefer, why don't I just do this med ball slam and get the benefits I need? I can do it today and get the benefits I need. Yeah, no, that's perfect. So, uh, finally, let's do the rapid fire questions and I'm going to challenge you to keep these to one sentence answers. Okay. And the first one is what is your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Yeah. So Bobby McGee's magical running is, I would always have to say that the performing edge though, is probably a little less known. And, uh, that's, uh, Dr. Joanne Ducato. And, uh, she's, she's, uh, she actually was second at the Ironman world championships like 25 years ago. Great book though. Sorry, more than yeah, one. And she's also a past guest of the show from the oh. pretty early days. Nice. Uh, and uh, what is an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Write it down. <laughs> Document. <laughs> and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Yeah, Bobby, Bobby McGee has to still be the main giant that I have to refer to. I've learned so much from him and uh, so appreciative of, of him and his expertise. Awesome. And uh, finally, where can people find you and your work, your programs and uh, everything you've got going on? Yeah, so you can go to Pandola Project. That will take you to our website. We also have on Instagram, that's our handle. We put out some information there every week. Any question is also where I'm uh, frequently answering questions. If that's an app, it's free. It used to, they used to uh, have a membership fee for it, but it's free now, actually, the last few months. And so any question, you can get on there. You can ask me any question you want to, and I can get back to you. We keep those answers. Unlike me in this podcast, we keep them uh, a minute to two minutes. <laughs> yeah but that's a lot of the things that uh the listeners like about this podcast that there is no no shortening of the answers no editing and uh the guests can go as deep as they want to and and i like to i like to hear people like you go deep on these topics so i really uh really enjoyed it and learned a lot so thank you so much matt and yes, hope to do it again another you. time Oh, and I, sorry, I just wanted to say if um, people do want or interested in our programs, 
We do have the run form program, and that's the one that Bobby McGee and me, <laughs> the one that we put out. That one, if you go on to our site, you get that one because it's the triathlon, that triathlon show. I set up that triathlon show 10. So you'll get 10% off of the product. But also, if you get the product, I'm also putting in triathlon strength program. And that program normally is separate and goes for $100. But I'm putting that one, uh, adding that one to the program as well. And then I can't do it for everyone. So the first five people that do it, I will contact you, hit you up with a Zoom meeting, and you can ask me any five questions you want to, or up to an hour that I can that I can give for that. So um, hopefully people are uh, interested in checking out the programs, but at the very least, you can go on to Pendola Project. You can get movement improvement with the protocol that is specific for you, absolutely free. And then, of course, we are also um, on our uh, movement improvement side of things. We are we are getting a lot of questions there. On any question, you can always ask me, like as you're trying to make progress. And on uh, triathlon or triathlete magazine, I'm getting a lot of people just maybe even starting off with that boot camp in the off season. So asking me questions. That's a great reason why I like to be an, a coach on that. Any questions. So just ask me there if you don't get on a Zoom call with me. So hopefully that helps and hopefully people are interested in that. I certainly appreciate being on today. I hope I was able to uh, to serve some people here with some answers. I'm sure. And thank you for that offer. That's, that's fantastic. And I hope that listeners uh, make use of it. Thank you again, Matt. Talk to you soon. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. You can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Matt's website where you can find his programs. And as he mentioned, at the end of the episode, he set up the code that triathlon show 10 uh, for the run form program that uh, you can then get a 10% discount for. And with that, you would get his triathlon strength program as a free bonus. Also check out Matt's any question profile uh, and the movement improvement free assessment, as well as the free a mobility bootcamp which is a four week week bootcamp that matt created for triathlete magazine i'll have all those links in the show notes uh, plus links to a bunch of previous episodes of that triathlon show with guests mentioned throughout this interview like jim vance bobby mcgee erin carson and joanne delcotter if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want to help to achieve your goals then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or a training plan we have options for athletes of all different levels and no matter the size of your goals and also for different budgets. A few points to highlight that reduce the barrier to get started is that we have no minimum commitment term nor any startup fees for coaching. And for the training plans, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on our website and an exchange guarantee so you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase through Training Peaks. We also have consultations and customized plan options and uh, you can find out all of more about all of this and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, we are happy to discuss your specific goals and needs and see what the best option is for you. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. Use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim goggles. And thank you to Zen8. 
Use the Senate Swim Training to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get a special bundle including the swim trainer and a number of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.